Good morning. It is good to be with you. Um, just a point of clarification. Um, I'm not doing the book of James, um, just as a point of clarification. But I would ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Lamentations. Um, I have been um, thinking a lot of late of, um, well, a lot of the losses that we've experienced over the last uh, nine months and how many more losses are yet to come. I can tell you with absolute certainty, I guarantee this 100% that one week from today, about half of America is gonna be downright miserable. Absolutely sure about this. I have no doubt in my mind that one week from today, half of America is gonna be miserable, probably. It's also a good possibility that a week from today, we won't have any idea which half is gonna be miserable. But the reality is at some point in the very near future, half of America is gonna be downright miserable. They're gonna be convinced that it is the end of the world as we know it. The apocalypse is upon us and that, uh, that we, we need to go and put on the sackcloth and ashes. I don't know which half that will be, but I'm guaranteeing you that will be half of America a week from today or sometime in the not too distant future. Uh, it has been a year, unlike any other year, really, in modern history, uh, for a lot of different reasons. Uh, never in the history of the United States has there ever been a time when the entire economy was shut down. It has never happened, not during the First World War, not during the Second World War, not during the 1918 flu, uh, not during the, the Hong Kong flu of the 60s. Never before in the history of the United States has the economy been shut down. Never have we gone from such record unemployment to such record, record employment to record unemployment in such a short time. And it's not like we're out of the woods yet, right? I know that perhaps you, if you're like me during the summer, when numbers became much more positive and people began to feel good about themselves going outside, enjoying the lovely weather, enjoying the beauty of the creation, maybe going down to the shore or going up into the mountains. And we saw hospitalizations drop, we saw all these positive things coming up. We began to feel perhaps, perhaps this was behind us. And now they're talking about second lockdowns. They're talking about uh, the second wave hitting us in terms of that. It's been quite a year. Not to mention, like, you know, the year started with the impeachment of the President of the United States. You might have forgotten about that. Or that the wildfires that are sweeping across many parts of the West. Or the fact that we've had, you know, hurricanes, power outages. Oh, did I mention the murder hornets? I mean, you know, it's been quite a year quite a year. And of course, a lot of models of church gathering have been challenged, right? So many churches depend on bodies in the pews, bucks in the plate, and their buildings being filled. But who could have guessed that for the churches to be closed, all the government had to do was ask? 
And so now we come to this kind of quasi place where we find ourselves today. Kind of normal, but really not. Recognizing that more people have died from this COVID virus than in the Great War, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War combined. So life is not normal. We're not in a place of normalcy. We're not in a place where we can say we're ready to get started again. And the leaders of our country seem to have no idea what to do. Some are saying it's not that bad, just keep going. Others are saying it's the absolute worst possible scenario and we've got to fix it. We have the power to do something about this. If we all do what we're supposed to do, we'll make this plague go away. Early on in the pandemic, I shared with my students an article from an analysis that was done. And it was one of those things I said to them, I said, I know you're not going to like this, but I have some, I want you to think about this. I want you to contemplate this. The article was talking about the fact that what if there's no such thing as herd immunity with this virus? And what if there really is no vaccine? I mean, we've never been able to come up with one for the common cold. What then? And on a personal level, this year was like no other year. Within the last year, uh, my sister passed away. Uh, and within the first two weeks or three weeks of the pandemic, um, I got news that a very old friend of mine, Jay Allen, died of the COVID virus. That an old friend of mine, was going to die within a week because he was terminally ill and that my brother-in-law's nephew died of a drug overdose all within the span of about three weeks so as you kind of go through and that was by the way at like when everything was just really going south here in our state it was back in march in the first couple weeks of april and so as you kind of enter into that experience, and it literally and figuratively feels like a darkness descending upon your soul, where do you turn and how do you respond to that? And that's been sort of the question I've had. Now, I wish I could tell you that I was really satisfied with the way I responded to all of this bad news and all of this darkness and all of this depressing, but I, I can't say I really handled it as well as I would have liked. And of course, in some circles, it, it would be sort of like if the response of the church in some of these situations would be, look, you know, Jesus loved you, sing another chorus, it's okay. But the reality is, is that we are far more complicated and far more complex than just any placebo application verse might be able to give us. And as I was thinking about this particular message, and I was thinking about the timing of this message, I was thinking about how it's November 1st, and we're nearing the end. And I, and I read this, and I thought this is so true, right? Somebody posted on Facebook, 
that they're going to stay up New Year's Eve, not to celebrate, but just to make sure 2020 goes away. <laughs> that it really does leave, you know, and that it's really over. But the, but the reality is that there's no guarantee 2021 is going to be any better. And so what, what do we do? And thinking about how, how much turmoil our nation has gone through with the protests and the civil unrest and the riots and the burnings and the murders and the, and the violence that has swept across many of the cities of our country. It's no wonder some people are just saying, what is going on? If you turn to Lamentations chapter three for a moment, please. We're just gonna look at a few verses as sort of a preview. Verse 17, my soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. So I say my strength has perished and so has my hope from the Lord. Remembering my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and the bitterness, surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and be silent since he laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust because perhaps there is hope. Let him give his cheek to the smiter. Let him be filled with reproach for the Lord will not reject forever. For if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. For he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. As I've thought about this, the Lord just impressed upon me within the last week or so that we need to take a walk through Lamentations. We need to take a walk through Lamentations, not just today, but when I come back, we're willing in January and spend that month looking at Lamentations. Now, why? Well, we will probably know who the president is at that point. So some of us will be happy and of us will be miserable. Uh, there will be whether or not we will, we will have a better sense of whether we're actually getting another second wave of the virus. We'll have a better understanding of, of where we're going to be in terms of the politics of the nation. And it's also a time of reflection. In other words, we, we come at the end of one year, the beginning of, the, uh, of a new year, and we anticipate certain things. And so it's good at that time of the year to kind of sit back and think about where we've come from. But more importantly, as Solomon says, it is good for us to go to the house of mourning because the wise are in the house of the morning more than the house of feasting. And when I began to look at Lamentations a number of years ago, it struck me that there is a, a, a minor note, if you will, in the life of the believer that is not really adequately expressed in the way we practice Christianity today. That there is a way that we have 
developed as Christians that doesn't know how to really deal with grief and sorrow and pain and loss, particularly in, in the modern evangelical community, which doesn't recognize, on the one hand, the awfulness of sin and how terrible and serious it is, and the depth of human sorrow. We probably all have had the experience in our lives when we have gone through something dark or difficult or painful, and we have been reluctant to talk about it with our brothers and sisters. We've not shared the struggle. We've not poured out our heart to them. Because in our hearts and in our minds, we kind of know that we're not going to get a satisfactory response from them. That there will either be a polite listening with a quote from Romans chapter 8 about how God works all things together for good. Or the person will offer some kind advice about how we can deal with our grief and move on. Or perhaps they'll listen politely and then physically, actually, socially distance from us. And so then rather than actually share what we burden, what burdens we carry, we suffer in silence. We put on the happy face, we go to the meeting, we show up on Zoom, and we act as though nothing's wrong. But that is not the way that the, way the Bible deals with it. It is not the way the scriptures deal with it. It is not the way that God deals with it. Now, for, for years, I've read the Bible. For years, I've gone through the Bible systematically. And I can confess that when I would come to the book of Lamentations, I would kind of just sort of breeze through the first couple of chapters without really lingering very long and just hope to get to chapter three because then it sounded good. And then after that, kind of like the eyes would glaze over again, like the way they do when you read First Chronicles, and you just kind of get through the second half of it without really lingering very long. However, if we were to stop for a moment and actually listen to the voice of Lamentations, as one commentator says, the book of Lamentations accosts us by a wayside as a stranger who offers us an unasked for, unwanted, and yet priceless gift, the poetry of pain. And we would be wise to listen. Because when you look at Lamentations and you take a, a deeper dive into it, what you find out is that Lamentations is actually five poems that correspond to the five chapters of Lamentations. Homer Heater, professor of biblical exposition at Dallas Theological Seminary, says this. Lamentations is perhaps the best example in the Bible of a combination of divine inspiration and human artistry. The depth of pathos as the writer probed the suffering of Zion and his own suffering is unprecedented. Each chapter is an entity in itself, a complete poem. The most obvious literary device utilized by the poet is the acrostic. That is, poems are built around the letters of the alphabet. As is well known, chapters one and two have three lines in each of their 22 verses. The first line of each verse begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. 
chapter three has 66 lines with the first three lines each beginning with the first letter of the alphabet. The second three lines beginning with the second letter of the alphabet and so forth. Chapter four has two lines per verse with only the first line of each verse beginning with successive letters. Chapter five is unique in that it has 22 verses, 22 lines, I should say, the number of the letters in the Hebrew alphabet, but the alphabetic structure is not used. Some have speculated as to why this structure is imposed on it. And some have said that perhaps it is the poet's way of imposing order upon the chaos that is surrounding them in the moment to give structure and meaning to the disaster that's unfolding in their lives another commentator writes the book of lamentations is a funeral song on the death of the city of god jay sidlow baxter writes pain pathos genius inspiration and beauty are all here it is a cloudburst of grief a river of tears a sea of sobs this pathetic little five-fold poem the lamentations has been called an elegy written in a graveyard and so it is my hope that we might spend some time lingering in lamentations drawing lessons from it for our own expression of loss whether that loss be just the loss of convenience or comfort or the loss of what was normal or perhaps the loss is more profound and the loss is more meaningful in the sense that you are experiencing losses that are much more painful and too difficult to even articulate but what can we see as a kind of introduction to this? What are some things that we can observe right away as a way to put our mind in a kind of framework to see what kind of truths and lessons Lamentations has for us? Well, first off, what we need to recognize is as you read through the book of Lamentations, there are many voices that are heard. In other words, when you're reading it, there's different speakers. For example, there is the narrator who starts off, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow is she who is great among the nations. The princess among the provinces has become a slave. And the narrator might be the prophet. The narrator might be the prophet himself as he's unfolding. But then there is also Lady Jerusalem who speaks. Lady Jerusalem who says things like, for these things I weep, my eye, my eye overflows with water because comforter who should have restored my life is far from me. My children are desolate because the enemy has prevailed. She's a different voice. There's the narrator who stands and sees and gives testimony to what is being witnessed. And then there is the Lady Jerusalem who weeps for her lost children. And then there's the voice of the community in chapter 5. Remember, O Lord, who, who has come upon us. Look and behold our reproach. 
In other words, the voice of the people of God, the community of faith, crying out for ransom. And then there's the righteous man of chapter 3, who says, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. Is it the narrator? Is it Jeremiah? This voice of one who sees affliction, who experiences God's wrath. But as you go through the book of Lamentations and you identify the voices that you see there, there is one voice that is missing. There is one voice that is silence. There is not one word from Yahweh. Never once do you read the words, thus says the Lord. You do not find, and the word of the Lord came to me, saying, you will not read, and God said. It is even more profound when you consider that the author who writes this is Jeremiah. Jeremiah, one of the longest books of the Old Testament, and in the first 10 chapters alone, 65 times it says, and thus says the Lord. And so there is a profound silence from God in the midst of sorrow and loss. But if we were to step back from that, right, wouldn't we agree with that experience? Wouldn't we understand it that at times of our greatest loss, it almost seems as if God is silent? That when we've asked him to solve the problem, take away the pain, heal the illness, or deliver from the bondage, that suddenly there is silence and we don't hear him? It was one of the things that profoundly moved C.S. Lewis when he wrote A Grief Observed. He said, meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you're happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you're tempted to feel his claims upon you are an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcome with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate. When all other help is vain, then what do you find? A door slammed in your face, a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more empathetic, more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. Might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. And that scene was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent to help in time of trouble. There is a grief and a sorrow that people go through that leaves them feeling as if God is silent. And of course, without acknowledging, now without recognizing that reality, when that person comes to us and talks about their feelings of grief and sorrow and loss, and we say, well, God knows, and their response in their heart is, does he? When my friend died, his daughter, who's young, she's in her early 20s, she posts regularly just how much she misses him. She will never have the joy of him walking her down the aisle. He will never see her get married. He will never see her grandchildren. There is this loss that she feels on an ongoing basis. It's not a loss that can be just wiped away. But this is the profound truth. Lamentations is the inspired word of God. 
but within it, God does not speak directly. The other thing that we notice as we read Lamentations is that the book of Lamentations never asks the question, why? There is such loss, such sorrow, such pain, such suffering expressed in Lamentations, but never once does the, any of the voices say, why God? Why is this happening to me? Because they know why. Jerusalem has sinned gravely and she has become vile. The Lord is righteous, says Lady Jerusalem, for I rebelled against his commandment. Hear now, all peoples, and behold my sorrow. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. The community says, the crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. And so what Lamentations presents to us is that the first question that we often ask is never once asked in this book. The first question that we ask often when we're in trouble, when we're in calamity, when we're in the midst of sorrow is why God? Why now? Why me? Why this? But Lamentations doesn't ask that question because they know the answer. And perhaps there is something there for us to grasp and comprehend when we consider the fact that the world in which we live and all the sorrow and all the pain that we experience in one way or another is the direct result of sin. It might not be my sin, it might be someone else's sin. It might not be my family's sin, but the fact that I live amongst a sinful people. Or it may very well be because I am a sinner and I make terrible choices at times. But the bottom line is that the reason why we lament is because we sin. And the need for lamentations is because we are an unclean people and we dwell in the midst of an unclean people. And like Isaiah, we should cry out, woe is me, woe is me. But here, there is something else that we see here. In addition to, a, in addition to this giving voice and vent to this experience, what we find in this poem, what we find in this very strange book in the Bible, in all of its structure, there, quite literally, in the middle of the book, if you were to take all of the stanzas and lay them out from one end to the other, right there in verse 33 of chapter 3, 333, we read these words, he does not afflict willingly. You see, it is not God's love that is passing, but his anger. Mm -hmm. The heart of the poem, both literally and spiritually, 
is in the middle passage of the middle chapter. Five times that word hope occurs. Affliction does its humbling work. The sufferer grasps his meaning and cries out, I have hope. Why? Because judgment, as one person has said, is God's strange work. But rather his loving kindness is everlasting. It's his compassions that do not fail. And that the disposition of God toward you and me is not wrath, but faithful love. And so as we begin this examination today of the book of Lamentations, we need to understand that it is both a protest and a pouring out of the sorrow in our heart. That Lamentations gives voice to a national tragedy, one born by the sin of the people, one conceived, if you will, and given birth to by the sin of the people. But nevertheless, in the midst of all of the sorrow and sadness and heartache and grief, there is this one glimmer of hope that his compassions never cease. His loving kindness never fails. For he does not afflict the sons of men willingly. <coughs> Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for this opportunity to explore for a few moments this thought that you see our sorrow, you hear our pain, and though we sometimes cannot hear you, or, 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 that there's a silence in the midst of the sorrow, that you are still there, and that your faithfulness and your loving kindness never end. And therefore, we can have hope. But we do pray, God, for our nation and for our land, that, that what has come upon this world at this time, that it might be, as it were, a clarion call for your people to repent and to seek your face. That we might stop putting our trust in princes and in powers of this world. That we would stop looking to the idols of this age to comfort and alleviate, but that we might return to you and find our rest. But, oh God, we recognize that as we've been reminded this morning, all our righteousness are as filthy rags, that we're saved by your grace through faith. And so we come by faith, Lord, now laying hold of the throne of mercy to seek help and grace in our time of need. And so, Lord, we, we, we lift up our nation to you. We lift up your people to you. We lift up this community of believers here to you. We ask your blessing on them. We ask your comforting presence. We ask for your power in our midst that we might bring honor and glory to you. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ken.